0: You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Chris Kreitschow, who works at LinkedIn on front-end web infrastructure. We talk about how a company as big as LinkedIn migrated millions of lines of code to TypeScript, TypeScript's unusual take on semantic versioning, and then get into the type system complexity trade-offs between various different programming languages. Here we go. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So as I understand it, you led the adoption of TypeScript at LinkedIn, which I can imagine was not a small project. How did that go? I guess, first of all, I guess I'd be wondering when did that start? Because different organizations of different sizes have It seems like everybody who has been using JavaScript is kind of moving towards TypeScript these days, but different companies kind of got it started at different times and maybe took more or less internal convincing. How did that part go? (laughs) That is a great question. The answer is, of
1: course, long and complicated, but basically there was interest at LinkedIn from well before I joined, which was close on five years ago now. It was back at the start of 2019. And... People had been experimenting with it. Some internal libraries had been rewritten into it, but there was no official support and certainly none of the millions of lines of application code that face our members and our end users and our customers was written in it. So it was mostly kind of initial experiments and a lot of open questions about what does adoption of this look like for us. And part of that is because like a lot of companies, thinking about how you support a new language is a big question. You know, If you're in a small three-person startup or you're in a small three-person team with the one web app in a startup, you can often get away with just saying, hey, Jane, Joe, what do you think about adding TypeScript to this? And everybody says, thumbs up, <laughs> and you do it. And that's the end of the story, right? And even doing something, you know, rewrite in Elm or whatever, like it's a lot easier right. at that scale versus the scale of, hey, this is going to have to support hundreds to thousands maybe of engineers. What's our strategy? So when I came in, I already had a bunch of experience in open source. I helped to build the Ember.js integration with TypeScript. And LinkedIn has historically been a big Ember.js user. So there was a lot of excitement about, oh, hey, Chris can help us do this. He's got leadership in the community. He's got the expertise, etc., And the actual timeline between then and when we actually started working on TypeScript was I think two and a half years, which is not unusual for a big company, I think. But it actually
0: would have guessed it would have taken longer than that at LinkedIn's size. I think it did because I think it had been going before I got there. Okay, okay. (laughs) And so
1: I think from the first probably internal line of TypeScript proving out, you know, how does this work for us to when it started, it probably was four to five years total my involvement in it ended up looking like doing the usual let's write a business case let's go look at what everybody else has experienced using it what the benefits we can expect to do how many bugs do we have that are just undefined is not a function the answer is a lot <laughs> it's <laughs> so many in our error logs and so you know just put together a document like that and then also figure out what are the things we have to do before it's even viable ember historically did not get along well with typescript cuz oh interesting who boy there were a lot of things that were preceded es6 and so they were using like bolted together classic class systems like a lot of people did where you would pass a plain old javascript object to a function to generate a new prototype that had those typescripts like i don't know what you're talking about man this in this pojo is not what you say it is what's going on so you know figure out how do you modernize the code bases to a point where typescript can be useful for them and then come up with a plan for how do you actually roll it out and then also get management bought in all the way up that this is a thing that's worth doing that's worth investing in because when you've got millions of lines of code converting it is non-trivial it's not as much as doing a rewrite but it's large
0: yeah i think this is interesting because a lot of times when people talk about adopting a new technology a lot of the conversations are around things like what are the benefits going to be what are the costs going to be etc i think typescript is an interesting case because in theory this should be about as almost as cheap as it gets because TypeScript is like a superset of JavaScript and it is you know giving you more errors. So you have to make code changes, not necessarily because your code couldn't work under TypeScript, but rather because TypeScript is going to give you errors that JavaScript is not giving you, which is kind of the point. And yet it still takes, when you have that much code, let's say five-ish years to do that and to kind of get everybody on board, which makes it kind of clearer maybe why humongous organizations don't generally do a big rewrite in languages that are even further afield that would take even longer. (laughs) I mean, I could imagine if you tried to go from JavaScript to Elm at LinkedIn, that might take a decade just to get all the code changed (laughs) over and like working on a basic level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, That actually ends up being one of the reasons why people do rewrites rather than migrations, because if you're starting from scratch, you don't have to think about those. You have all the other problems that come with rewrites, but you don't have the problem of how do I make this code, which notionally works and maybe is throwing a large number of runtime errors that I'm going to try to turn into compile time errors, but you just get to start over and be like, ah, oh, it always is great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. I think maybe a common or like a, a lot more common modern example of this would be Rust is like a lot of companies of various sizes are saying, I want to rewrite either from a garbage collected language to Rust because they want better performance or from like a C plus C++ or a C yeah. to Rust because they want more things to get caught at compile time. And yeah, I mean... If you imagine like a company like Microsoft saying, hey, we're starting to adopt Rust, it's like, okay, well, I'll see you in 20 years. When I, <laughs> you know, that's like a, <laughs> seriously yeah. part of the code base now. Yeah.
1: And I think that's an interesting, looking at the Microsoft adoption for Windows, looking at Linux starting to say, we're going to pull these things in at least at certain layers because, hey, memory safety. Turns out it's nice. It's not free, but it is nice. And when you're an operating system
0: vendor, maybe more than nice. I'm actually kind of surprised by that one, to be honest, like the Linux. I would have guessed, like having never written a line of operating system Mm -hmm. kernel code in my life, but my (laughs) intuition would be, I would imagine there would be a huge amount of situations where you just have to write unsafe code. There's just no possible way to get any useful guarantees out of something like the borrow checker. But then again, I can also imagine that maybe that happens a lot at the edges, but you can get some mileage out of saying, okay, yes, this part right here is very unsafe, but then we can say, okay, now I've checked this and that and the other thing. And from now on, I don't need to worry about it. And maybe that's valuable.
1: Yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed your discussion with Mitchell about Zig a few weeks ago when that came out. One of the things that it got me thinking about was exactly this trade-off. And one of the things that occurred to me was you end up in a spot that feels to me very similar to JSON decoders in Elm, where you have this untrusted part of your system, whether or for the same way coming from user input, right? You have some chunk of your system where you're going to pay overhead in one way or another, either developer time or actual performance or maybe some of both to Mm -hmm. get these guarantees. And you're going to spend all of your time in some sense on Mm -hmm. those hard parts, right? The boundary into unsafe or like how do I make my API calls safe? Mm -hmm. But that kind of analogy Of, okay, but if I isolate that, then I don't have to worry about this JSON payload blowing up because, ah, the server lied. It did actually come through undefined this time. Catch it at the API boundary. And I suspect there's a lot of similar dynamics with kernel kind of development. You're going to have unsafe, but by putting, knowing where it is, I can search the unsafe keyword. (laughs) That gives me an up versus C, C++, where it's like, I mean valgrind let's go right yeah
0: (laughs) so actually that reminds me something i'm curious about is so you mentioned like json decoders in elm and Mm -hmm. of course the trade-off there is that in elm as opposed to typescript you have to define here is exactly the shape of the json payload i expect and once you do that either it will fail right at the decoding step or else it comes into your elm program and you're like i can be 100 confident this is actually the types that i have now Mm -hmm. whereas As I understand it, I say, because I've never actually used TypeScript in this way in production. As I understand it, in TypeScript, you basically don't need to say what shape you expect it to be, but also there's not going to be a validation step. It's just going to get translated into a JavaScript object. And then if that didn't match your expectations later on, you're just going to get some error that's going to be distant from where the actual decoding happened. But as I understand it, you can opt into things that are more like Elm's JSON decoders. Which way did you go with that at LinkedIn?
1: So what we've done is essentially choose to trust the API and do an enormous amount of, so we have a well-typed backend for our API, and there's a lot of existing tooling that allowed us to say, okay, here's whether from our Java and our definition language for the models that the Java API emits, or as we move to GraphQL and we have a well-known, here's what the GraphQL schema is, okay, Given that schema, we know what the type of the data is. It obviously doesn't prevent a bug. As you say, if the server hands you the wrong thing at that point, then you're going to get an error somewhere way down the line. But assuming that the server hands you what it promises it hands you per the GraphQL schema, then you can more or less trust the type at that boundary because if it's wrong, it's a bug in the server or it's a bug in your deserializer. So those are things that can absolutely still happen and bite you. But what we chose to do is say, at the scale we're operating at, we kind of can't afford, and we know this from experience, we can't afford to ship that kind of validation and deserialization logic across the wire for everything. Long time ago, LinkedIn had, actually before I joined, would ship model classes across the wire for every single resource that we pulled from the REST API. And that would give you a lot of those benefits because when you tried to say, hey, fetch this user, this member ID or whatever, then if it didn't map correctly into that class, get an error right then and there. And when you're shipping the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of those models across the wire, like it ended up being just parsing. All of that code ended up being one of the worst parts of our performance. And so we ended up writing a very dynamic schema deserializer that could say, okay, given this payload across the wire, I can map it into the right kind of object for you. But those are the kinds of things that you just don't, I mean, at even a medium sized app, a couple hundred thousand lines, half a million, maybe you can get away with those kinds of things. And then all of a sudden you're talking millions of lines and at some point it's gone quadratic and you've fallen off a cliff and everything is terrible.
0: (laughs) Interesting. So one of the scenarios that I would imagine, like you mentioned, if you don't get the payload you expected, that's a bug in the server. I know that that can be true if you're really hardcore about backwards compatibility. But if you're not, then another thing that can happen is, well, the server... Is correct today and the client is correct today, but somebody left a browser tab open for like a year Uh or something (laughs) and they're still on an older version of the client and so they're getting very mysterious errors that are clogging up our error logs that really have to do with the fact that we made a breaking change to our API and now it's not deserializing correctly in that older version.
1: Yes, we for sure have that problem. We have a pretty decent backwards compatibility story because of how long we support the iOS and Android apps, which consume the same API. And those we know sit on people's phones for a long time. So our backwards compatibility story is good. And also, we have that person who's had her tab open on LinkedIn for the last five years and has never reloaded. And we're like, it doesn't even work. What are you doing? But (laughs) we're still getting the error logs. So, And backwards compatibility is an, an interesting problem in this space in general. One of the related things that came up for LinkedIn is, okay, we care a lot about backwards compatibility. And in fact, we're one of the few companies our size that doesn't do the big mono repo thing we instead work as kind of an open source ecosystem does. We have an internal open source, internal source ecosystem (laughs) where we have libraries that publish packages with versioning and we aggressively use semantic versioning to manage that. Not perfectly always, but it's Semver. It's a social contract, right? So there was this big question when we went to adopt TypeScript. Okay, but TypeScript doesn't do Semver, right? How do we handle that?
0: What do you mean TypeScript doesn't do it? Yeah, that's what I was actually
1: about to say. For listeners who don't know, the TypeScript team has this deep-seated philosophical commitment that goes back to at least 2013, I think was the first time they publicly really came out and said this, that any change to a compiler is going to break someone's code. It's all a breaking change. So Semver is meaningless for a language compiler. Ah, (laughs) <laughs> so some of her nihilism. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like Hiram's law, which is that, you know, for any sufficiently large system, any change you make breaks somebody. There's the XKCD of the guy who's like, hey, you rolled out this release and it fixed this bug. But I was right. relying on that bug because it was heating my keyboard and that made me keep my <laughs> apartment warm. What have you done? You've broken my workflow. And I don't happen to agree with the TypeScript team here. I said this a second ago, but Semver is a social contract, right? You can add some machine enforcement on top of it in various ways. I know Elm has done this. We looked at ways you could do this with TypeScript mechanically because you can know what kinds of things are breaking changes. There's a tool that you can cargo install in the Rust ecosystem that likewise can analyze the changes to your public API and say, hey, is this going to break people? But at the end of the day, it's not a purely technical contract. It's actually a socio-technical contract where you get to say, here's what a breaking change is. And it's not just any change, but here's the contract. So like Rust makes, quote unquote, breaking changes to the compiler sometimes because it says, if we fix a soundness bug that was going to cause a memory safety issue in your program. That's a bug fix. We get to call right. that a bug fix. It's not a breaking change. But TypeScript, no, that's a breaking change. So everything's a breaking change. So their version numbers are, we did some stuff. It's been about a quarter. Here's a new version. And when they get to .9, then they go 3.9, 4.0. So when they get to 4.9 in another year and a half or two years, then will come TypeScript 5.0. And that's
0: just how it rolls. I didn't know that, first of all. So, this is new information to me. I have to say that I am surprised given that stance that they don't just have integer version numbers and just say, this is TypeScript 16. Next up, TypeScript 17. It seems like if you're going to say, we don't believe in Semver, but then you use the Semver dots, that's just confusing people. You know that people have an expectation of what that means. And you say, well, we're just, we don't believe in that. Maybe they're arguably priced into it because that's kind of what npm does but again if you believe in that just don't ever use the other two digits just only ever use the major digit so i agree with you that i also don't agree with that philosophy it seems like there is a useful distinction between releases that you can definitely expect are going to break things in a certain way versus they might break something if you were relying on you know a particular whatever one other way of saying that is if you're just going to do the monotonically increasing integer release or just release based on a date or something like that, and that's the name of your release, that's fine. But it communicates just strictly more information to have something like Semver where it's like, hey, we broke an API change. Like this is a breaking API change. It's not just a bug fix that might have you know affected you or something like that. That's useful information. I don't agree with that either. But it does seem weird to me that if you're going to take that stance, you wouldn't stand by it and just only ever use the major version number.
1: Well, then the two funny things that also come out of it are, number one, they do use the patch release to signal a bug fix. So if 4.5 comes out and then they realize there's a significant performance regression or, oh, this actually broke type inference over here or something, they'll ship 4.5.1. And it's not actually that for uninteresting reasons about the publishing processes. But it would be like from 4.5.3 to 4.5.4 is a bug fix. You're like, guys, Doesn't that violate your philosophy? But apparently (laughs) the other piece of it is that there's a marketing, hey, we want you to have Big Bang releases every so often that are big number releases that we can talk about and say. As Daniel Rosenwasser, who's the project manager, has said publicly a couple times, look, they pay us to make the language so we'll let them have their big bang releases, even though we might, I think a lot of them would actually prefer to just do the monotonically increasing major revision. But yeah, especially in the NPM ecosystem, you have to teach everyone, okay, don't put caret for anything greater than, because that's going to bump you as soon as it comes out. You need to use a tilde or an exact version constraint so that you don't say any higher version is valid. No, no, please don't do that. (laughs) Or
0: TypeScript itself, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's such a, bizarre scenario to be in. I mean, first of all, it's weird to me to imagine. And I understand that corporate open source works differently than non-corporate open source, but it's weird to me to imagine there is a marketing department and they are partly in charge of how we do our version numbering. (laughs) Versioning. That's a really strange concept to me. (laughs) And separately, it's weird to me that they want to have a big bang release every once in a while, but it's just kind of completely manufactured to be like well it's going to be exactly every 10 releases give it except for yep. the bug fix releases that we don't believe in but do but <laughs> and, exactly. and so it's like well is it exciting if you know it's just happening every 10 releases and if you don't know that do you mistakenly think it's exciting when it's actually not because you think that (laughs) they're following Semver when they're not. Because usually if you have a big major change in a project that's following Semver, it's like, well, we didn't want to break backwards compatibility or API backwards compatibility, but this is so valuable that we think it justifies doing that. That's at least the typical scenario. And so this is, yeah.
1: (laughs) It's very strange. I mean, I've seen that as well. There's also this social expectation around versioning that Breaking change releases, big number version releases, Semver majors, are always kind of exciting, big feature things. And the Ember community actually tries to invert that, and it causes a lot of people don't know what to do with it. So what Ember historically has done is say, the only thing that major releases do is remove deprecated code. All the actual excitement happens in feature releases along the way. And there's a release strain very similar to Rust's, where if it's in, it's in. If it's not, it's not. It waits till it's done. It bakes. And also a similar idea to Rust's additions. Ember also does those. And so the idea is, ah, this is when everything all fits together in a new, exciting way. This is our Big Bang release. But Ember 5 comes out and everybody's like, what? There's nothing new in it. like, yeah, that's the point. There's nothing new in it. All we did was <laughs> remove some craft that's been deprecated for years that we gave you migration password. But nobody knows what to do with it because there is that social expectation of big number means big. In a lot of ways, I think it goes back to boxed software, right? You go get Borland C++ 4.0 or whatever as your new version of the compiler off the shelf. And that's a new thing, which has a bunch of new features in it. And so the open source and Semver norms are very, very different. And I think that gets to one of the ways that kind of software as a product versus libraries or frameworks, they have these overlaps, but they're not identical. And that can cause a lot of confusion for your end users. And you have to work really hard at the messaging on it. And I don't think it's a quote unquote solved problem.
0: Yeah, I buy that. Going back to the sort of like, Era of, you know, you buy software off the shelf. I think another thing that's interesting there is if you were getting like a new sort of major release off the shelf, that was a big deal because, I mean, you went to the store and paid money for this thing and got off the shelf. So, of course, it's going to feel like a big deal. If you went, I'm kind of thinking of like Windows 3.0 to Windows 3.1, which I don't know if that was or was not a breaking change. I was young enough, (laughs) like I am old enough that I remember when that happened, but it was like my dad went and got Windows 3.1, you know? So in that world, I wonder if people are thinking like, oh, this is just an upgrade and all my stuff's gonna keep working the same way. Or if it's like, well, maybe I can skip this one. It's not gonna be that big of a deal. I'll wait for Windows 4.0 to come out or something like that. Because as I understand it, maybe since Windows 95, I don't think they've ever done the like, Point release ever again, at least not that I could remember.
1: No, I think that's right. And the number of software packages out there that still do that, I mean, a lot of apps in the App Store have a, you know, or the Play Store, they have a version number, but what is it? Who knows? It's not really the delivery model. I use some music notation software for composing music, and that one does actually do version numbers but they were one of the last companies I saw to actually do the 0.5 release where it was a big deal and like they had their patch releases prior to that but then it was like 3.5 and it was this big step up from like 3.1 3.2 and you're like but what are you what, <laughs> what are you doing guys and I think they've kind of bailed on that one after that but it was funny because I do also remember that being a thing that like the 0.5 release would be a big step and you're like, that's just again a very very different work, And I
0: guess models. browsers kind of do the increment to major version now. Like every time they're just like, it's the new major version. But they also do, I mean... Yep, Chrome one hundred thirty. Right. I mean, they also do like releases in between. But I think it's just bug fixes. I actually don't know. I'm sure this has happened. I just don't remember it. But I wonder if browsers will come out with a minor release. Like, did they ever use that middle digit? I actually don't know. I'm sure I could look this up, but don't know off the top <laughs> of my head. I'm reminded that Andre Staltz wrote this thing several years ago about something he called Conver, which is an alternative to Semver. And it's basically Semver with just two digits, breaking and non-breaking. I thought that was interesting, sort of thought-provoking around kind of his claim is like, look, this is what's interesting. Is like, it's a new release. Did it break me or not? Did it add features or no? I don't really care because, I mean, if it did, well, I'm going to have to go look at the docs to see what the new features were anyway. If it didn't, it's not like I'm going to skip the upgrade because it, only fixed bugs and didn't add any new features and either way i want to kind of look and see what bugs it fixed i think an interesting counter argument there is well if it's a bug fix i can kind of upgrade and know that i don't need to bother looking at the release notes because i'm like well it fixed some bugs i don't really care what they were they're fixed now but if there's a new feature then maybe i do want to actually take a look at it and see what the new features were
1: yeah i think the challenge that you end up with as a maintainer is then you start, especially with Semver, the way it's used in general, you end up Semver lawyering of like, I changed something. Is it a bug fix? Is it breaking? Is it? I actually had to do this with a small library I help maintain that we use internally at LinkedIn because we figured out that it could cause memory leaks under what was supposed to be a memory optimization. Garbage collection—it's great, (laughs) except for when it's not. And it was just one of those things where you know you could end up accidentally holding on to a reference to this thing, and it mostly only mattered in test suites or certain kinds of server-side rendering contexts. But hey, when you have thirty thousand tests running in your app test suite, memory leaks there are a problem, or your server-side rendering—it's kind of a problem. So we ended up fixing it, but the way I fixed it, it broke technically a previous invariant where I used to say, hey you're only going to ever get one instance of this given a call to it of a certain shape. So I'm going to memoize. And if you give me the same args, I'm going to give you back the same thing that caused the leak. (laughs) I was (laughs) like, Oh no, I have to stop memoizing. But technically I'm breaking this promise that I made. Probably it's okay. And we called it a bug fix and shipped it and just said, Hey, if you happen to have been depending on this behavior,
0: Sorry, yeah. Right. Sorry,
1: but not having a memory leak seems better than this memoization that you might, maybe a few of you have been in.
0: And I think that's like you were talking about, you know, December is a social contract. At the end of the day, like there's going to be a lot of cases like that where it's just a judgment call and it's not something that you can necessarily... Yep. Enforced in an automated way, unless your automated way of enforcing it is just diff. Is anything different? Major. Major. right. Which I guess is nominally the TypeScript team's stance on it, which at least, if nothing else, it's e- easy to automate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. One of the things we ended up thinking about as a result of all of this is like, okay, TypeScript itself doesn't do breaking changes the way we expect, but also the language is complicated. As with many advanced languages, TypeScript's type system is Turing complete. People have implemented SQL in it, and you just I'm sorry, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> but because of that, we also had to think about what does it mean for a library to know about breaking changes? And Elm's prior art and the Rust cargo tool that does this cargo checks. were both interesting to look at. Yeah, cargo semver checks. Thank you. But both of those type systems, especially Elm's, kind of delightfully, are much simpler, like much, much, much simpler. And so the Elm one can be much simpler of a checker, like actually automating this in TypeScript ended up being very possible, but we ended up writing a detailed spec. It lives at semver-ts.org that tries to actually walk through, if you want to think hard about Semver and the types you're publishing for others to use, the types that your public API contract is, what does that mean? And it turns out that there were a couple really big complicating factors to it. The biggest one is mutability, maybe not surprisingly. And the way that mutability interacts with things like variants, like, okay, I've got this array and it's got these types in it. What am I allowed to put into it or take out of it? And that is really complicated because arrays are mutable. And that basically means that if you want to be really strict, they have to be invariant. The only thing you're allowed to ever put in or take out of them is the exact type that, you originally did. And so things that might intuitively seem like, oh, well, I can be more conservative in what I give you as the return type from my function. I can say, I used to give you an array of strings or numbers, but now I'm only going to give you an array of numbers. And all your code should still work, right? No, you've got code that pushed numbers into that array because it's mutable. Ha <laughs> I just broke your code. It stopped type checking. But even worse, actually, and when I started looking into this, there was zero anything anywhere on the internet about it. But now there's actually somebody published a paper on it uh, a few months after I finished the draft of this what do you do when types themselves are, in some sense, mutable? And what I really mean here is, TypeScript does control flow analysis, where it says, okay, the type at this point in the program of X is string or number, but if I say, if type of X equals string, then I know that it's a string at this point in the program. Not quite as far as you'd get right, and then, you, then from that branch onward, it's exactly. just Exactly, and so you can do a length check on it, whereas if you call dot length on a number, type error. This is super powerful. It allows you to do a lot of very helpful things when interacting with very dynamic JavaScript code and make it safe. But it means that you've effectively introduced mutability at the level of type variables. (laughs) And it turns out that it's just as problematic as having mutability at the level of value variables because you're in this world now where what I'm promising to you as an end user gets affected by that control flow analysis and gets affected by the kinds of operations that are legal to do on this thing that I hand back to you. So we ended up having to specify things like, hey, here's a user constructible thing. Here's an interface that you're allowed to build, in which case here are the rules that apply to it because at the end of the day, you're in charge of all of those semantics versus here's one that I'm giving you a name that you can import and reference but that I'm the only one who's allowed to build it. A good example here would be like Ember's routing layer has types that the router itself constructs. You're not allowed to build those. They're supposed to be fully immutable. We'll give them to you when it's appropriate, but you've got to be able to name them. You have to be able to say, hey, I want a function that walks the route hierarchy and says, where am I? Or something like that. All of these things, like I ended up writing something like, I don't know, 10,000 words on this, and I haven't updated it in a year. And it's, Probably a few of the type system features that have landed since then warrant inclusion and updating. But the big thing I learned from it is more or less, one, embers really, really, really hard. And two, it gets that much harder in a lot of ways, the more complicated and the more features your type system has, because every one of those new features ends up being a thing that your API that you're promising to people. Now has to account for whether that's Rust lifetimes or dependent or linear types in Haskell or whatever, like those things now affect your public contract that what you're promising to users. And this has made me more and more sympathetic to keeping the surface area of a type system in a language smaller you know, sticking with the Elm or F sharp, where it's like, nope, we're just, we're not going to do that. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of non-obvious advantages to keeping a type system simpler. Like that certainly is one example. Another example is presumably easier to keep your compile times (laughs) lower. You have fewer pathological cases, if nothing else, but also sometimes just like normal cases take longer to type check if you have these more complicated type systems. Also error message quality. Again, I'm not going to say that it's necessarily better, but I would say it's probably easier to make good also there's the basic sort of benefits of simplicity like it's easier to learn it's you know harder to end up in a situation where you have something really complicated that you're trying to understand and it's hard to understand just because it's so complicated <laughs> because it's possible yes. to make something that complicated yeah so there's a lot of benefits there for sure i think it's actually interesting that you're comparing type system to rust and elm and noting that it's like you know much more complicated than those i kind of wanted to chuckle at that because to me the idea that Rust and Elm's type system are in a, like a oh, similar no. category no, no. of complexity. <laughs> You've got like Elm
1: way over here and then like maybe F sharp over here and then like Rust up here, like close to Haskell and then TypeScript's
0: like, <laughs> and, and then TypeScript is in a or yeah, Cause planet. it's got
1: yeah. like structural types and subclassing and this control flow analysis based every like, I like to joke that it's Anders Helsberg's playground for how can I productionize some way out there feature from academic research on type systems? And it just, like, if you go back and read release notes from the last five years, I think that team and particularly Anders has done more to productionize advanced type system concepts out of academia than any other language except maybe Rust in the last decade because everybody's like, actually, this is really useful for representing the wacky shenanigans that my JavaScript code does. And at the same time, oh my gosh, is it very complicated stuff at times.
0: Yeah. So I don't have any firsthand knowledge of what motivates new TypeScript type system features. But I have talked to people who work on Haskell as well as on Rust. And I do know that especially early on in Rust's sort of development as a language, there was kind of a moment where a lot more grad students mm-hmm. got involved with in the compiler. And there were features that ended up getting added to the language, not necessarily because there was, like, demand for them or that they solved a particular problem, so much as it's like, hey, let's do this. And, like, this is a cool thing to write a paper about. But in Haskell, that's sort of explicitly done because Haskell was, that's, like, what it was made for. It was a research language, first and foremost. And the fact that Haskell is used in industry is... Almost more of like a historical accident than like anything that was intended. But with Rust, it's kind of the opposite. So it's a little bit stranger to see it in Rust. But having said that, I don't know if that still happens in Rust today as much. But I do think that when the Rust team decides whether they're going to add a feature, it seems like there's a lot of discussion about like what concrete problem is this solving, at least on like issue trackers and stuff. Like I said, I don't have any data on <laughs> one yeah. way or the other on how yeah. TypeScript, TypeScript does TypeScript
1: does seem to have a strong connection and motivation to solving real problems. I mean, even the kinds of things that I was talking about are just, okay, we're trying to describe real world JavaScript code bases, which just tend to be Strange <laughs> and do very, <laughs> right, right. very dynamic things because JavaScript is a very dynamic language. You see a lot of the same features showing up in the dynamic type, these gradual type systems, I should say, for Python and Ruby for very similar reasons. Right. And I think it's just kind of inherent in the problem space that trying to represent highly dynamic, highly mutable languages that rely heavily on subclassing, but also have a lot of functional bits to them, just ends up pushing your language and type system into, okay, they're dispatching on string variants to know what this thing is. Can we make our type system do that and then be useful after that? And the answer ends up being yes, but it ends up being introducing these other complications. Whereas if you start from, I have types and I can make decisions about Maybe I want structural typing, but maybe I don't want certain kinds of dynamicism in the system. Saying no to things unlocks a lot of potential, which I think is often easy to overlook, especially when you're, I know for me, it was like, no, I want all the power when I was first getting started. Now I'm like, <laughs> I want the least amount of power I can possibly have lest I come to regret it in a year or two.
0: Yeah, I remember like another example of simplicity, in this case, not in the type system, but well, I eh, kind of having benefits so in rock we have a lot of like complicated implementations around how things get compiled Uh, to try and have them compiled to like the most efficient thing possible. I was talking with, I think it was Andrew Kelly who made Zig about closures and how we do closures in Rock and how we compile them. And he had a question about, like if you're doing that strategy and that implementation, like how do you deal with, you know, somebody writes a closure that like mutates something in the outer scope. I'm like, oh, that's easy. We don't allow that. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a thing. So we don't have that problem. But you can imagine like if we did have that, like it's probably pretty easy to say, oh, just put mutation in your language or just like, just have it like in a limited form of mutation, like only inside the function body or something like that as a convenience or, or whatever else that can have some pretty serious consequences as it turns out for like what you're able to offer in terms of like how efficiently you're compiling things another good example in rock's case is reference counting so we do reference counting well either reference counting or nothing and something like fancier but completely behind the scenes for memory management as opposed to traditional sort of tracing garbage collector which i guess python and swift are probably the most popular languages that do reference counting and one of the things that normally you have to deal with in reference counting is cycles. Like you have a cyclic data structure that ends up referring to itself and reference counting by default doesn't handle that well and will give you memory leaks. So usually what languages like that do is they have to offer or automatically do some sort of separate pass that does like cycle detection and you know that's expensive at runtime and so forth. And so that's the question that we get asked periodically is someone says like, hey, Rock does reference counting. How do you deal with cycles? And again, the answer is like, you can't make those. <laughs> you cannot make a cyclic data structure in right. Rock because that requires mutation. Like if you have mutation, you of course automatically have cyclic data structures because you can just say like, you know, foo equals and then like some fields and then you just set one of the fields equal to foo. But if you don't allow mutation, then you just by default cannot do that. So, and I guess that can also come up in Haskell. Haskell's lazy. So there's also, you can have something refer to itself when you're defining it, but Rocks is not lazy. So that's another, you know, simplification that ends up actually having runtime performance benefits. And I think, Those types of things are things that often get overlooked just because they're not obvious because, you know, you don't necessarily see that benefit. You just, you know, immediately see like, well, I sure would like to be able to mutate this thing right here. That would be nice. (laughs) And it's not obvious. It's like, well, things are going to run slower. Like all of your programs are going to run slower by a significant amount if you want that. So are you sure you want that? It's just not usually a trade off that people are thinking about.
1: I think part of that is because it's hard to think about even whole program consequences, much less whole ecosystem consequences for those kinds of things. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think to tie together a couple of things you mentioned there and earlier, I think exactly what you described around closures is part of why using closures in Rust is about the point where Rust feels worst to me. It's hard. And the error messages also tend to fall off a cliff. Like if you've got lifetimes and closures, you're done. Just Go home. Like they do their best. They're very, very good given the constraints they're operating with there. But the number of things that they're trying to fit together to give you a useful error message for a closure lifetime mismatch, is just, it doesn't
0: work well. Well, and especially if you get like async in the mix, like I cannot, I'm just thinking of all the times that I've been like, OK, I don't know what this error is telling me, The like Rust compiler error. Uh, let's try <laughs> nope. to make it a move closure. Did that fix it? No. OK, uh, make it a mutable closure. OK, wait, <laughs> I need a, uh, I need a mutable asing. reference like, that, to that an impl
1: FN. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. And then those things, yeah, I think the same thing is true in a lot of ways of like where Haskell has ended up is any individual extension to the language is often defensible or interesting, but spread out over the language ecosystem as a whole It can be very, very difficult. You end up in the same spot that like Google has its allowed subset of C++ because the language is just so big and the pieces are not orthogonal to each other. And a lot of shops, as far as I can tell, end up similarly with Haskell saying like, here are the language features you're allowed to use. F-Sharp doesn't have that problem. f Sharp's is just like, yeah, we're not adding those things. And you'll have to write a little more boilerplate sometimes. It's okay. And those whole ecosystem (laughs) impacts flow out of those kinds of things. And it is really hard to predict which one is going to be – no, this is actually really worth it. It's going to add a little complexity, but it's going to give me so much for that. I think Rust's lifetime annotations and the borrow checker are an example of this. In the space it's working in, there are a lot of mental overhead, but they also give you things that really, really pay for themselves. Not everything is like that, though. And it's easy when you're a language enthusiast or a type systems grad student or whatever to be like, but this thing is awesome. And you're like, yeah, it is awesome. But I don't <laughs> know if it's a good fit right here for this language, maybe ever. It's hard.
0: Right. And the question of like, is it worth it? It's important to ask that question, obviously. I do think looking at something like, you know, F-sharp and Elm and Rock versus like a roster of Haskell. I do think one interesting comparison there is to code formatters. So you can see kind of a spectrum among code formatters. So on the one hand, you have something like GoFumped or Elm format, which is like, we will format your code this way and there is no configuration options ever. That's it. This is the way it's going to format your code. And so nobody ever thinks about configuration options. Nobody ever argues about style. That's like one of the selling points. then you have stuff like Prettier, which is configurable, quite configurable. In the Haskell world, you have (laughs) several different competing code formatters. Uh There's not consensus on which one to use and they're configurable to different degrees. And then of course you have like the old school way of doing things before code formatters were even an option where everybody just kind of did their own thing and maybe you came up with conventions or not. And then maybe in between those, you have like a language that maybe publishes like, hey, here's how you're supposed to do things in this language. And maybe people do or do not follow that and maybe have exceptions. And then I guess you can also even have some formatter will let you on a case-by-case basis in the middle of your source code opt out of the formatting if you really want to custom format something. And what's interesting to me about that comparison is that there is definitely an advantage to saying there is no configuration ever. This is just exactly how your code is going to be formatted because it means your brain spends zero cycles thinking about that. You're just like, this is how everybody does it. This is how it's going to work. I don't even think about anything to do with code formatting. I just you know hit save and then it's done on the flip side, you can also make the case that yes, but there are some situations where I can get benefits out of organizing my code like a table and like I can make things line up in a way that makes the source like what's going on easier to understand. That's totally true, too. But at some point, you have to acknowledge that there's not an obvious answer to like which way is the best. There's just a spectrum, and like they have trade-offs. And if you want to say there's zero configuration, that has benefits, but it also has the cost that you miss out on those cases. And if you want to not miss out on those cases, there's a cost, which is now everybody always has to be thinking about formatting as a potential lever they can pull and something they can change.
1: You need a pragma that says format is stable.
0: Yeah. And like, you know, whether you have that as an option affects whether you're thinking about every single time you write something. Oh, should I use that? Should I use that? Should I use that? And that's the tax on your brain. I think something that reminded me of that in particular is there's this sort of movement called simple Haskell. And the idea is it's sort of saying, well, Haskell has all these features and they're pretty cool, but we should really use like a simpler subset of Haskell, or at least that should be something that is a valid and culturally accepted choice for industrial projects. But as I saw someone point out recently, if you look at the simple Haskell manifesto, it doesn't tell you which subset to use. It doesn't actually endorse, like, here's what we mean. And apparently the reason for that is there's a lot of people who agree, yes, we should use a simple subset, but they don't actually agree on which subset to use. So even if you want to make the case that, well, it's better to have a language with a lot of features and then you can choose to use a subset of that, that still doesn't solve the problem of which subset are using and especially... If you get into an ecosystem, it's like, well, if there's not consensus on which subset to use, you're just going to have an ecosystem that uses the superset.
1: And the libraries across the ecosystem can force your hand. You may say, I want to use this, but the only thing that's available in the ecosystem that solves this actually really hard problem uses these four advanced features. And it does so in a way that like, sometimes you can obscure that. I've thought for a long time that it would be really interesting to have a language that does at this level, something kind of like what you all have been thinking about doing in Rock with platforms for other levels, but to be able to say, these are things you can use in your implementation, but they can't leak in terms of your API. So that as a library author, maybe there are ways that I want to be able to take advantage of some of these advanced features, but I have to do that in a way that doesn't leak into my API publicly. It seems like there's an opportunity there because it would give you, in a way that's almost similar to like TypeScript's publishing type definitions, like your internal implementation can do all sorts of shenanigans. But if your public API doesn't expose that, when you actually go to publish it, your consumers don't know or care and they don't have to pay the compilation tax because they're just type checking against your public API. And I kind of wonder if there's a way to do that at a programming language level of saying, you know, here's the equivalent of no camel interface file, and the type system is restricted in this space. And this is how your public interfaces can work, versus here are the things that you can use as levers internally as a library author.
0: Yeah, that's certainly an interesting idea. I think that I have seen people, well, taking a slight tangent on this, there's this. Sort of competing schools of thought, I think most people honestly don't think about this that much, but among people who do, there are competing schools of thought regarding what you should do with your public API in terms of hiding, like how much hiding you should do. So one school of thought says you should hide as sort of as much as possible, such that the public API is really just what you ought to be using. And the upside of that is then I can change the internal implementation without breaking people. I'm sort of free as the author of that thing to make future improvements and not have to worry about were people accidentally relying on that, like going back to the Semver conversation, because they couldn't have been relying on it. I just didn't expose those internals. There are some nice benefits to that. The opposing school of thought to that says, I want you to expose everything because I'm an adult and let me worry about whether your future changes are going to break me or not. I don't want to be blocked by hey, there's this thing, it's right there, but you're just not letting me use it. I want to use it, it would solve my problem right now and unblock me right now. I don't wanna have to have a conversation with you about whether or not you're willing to expose it, just expose everything. The problem is that if you're building an ecosystem, these are mutually exclusive. You can't both at the same time say, everybody expose everything and also everybody hide things. And of course, you're gonna have some people who want one versus who want the other. Some people are gonna say, hey, I sure would like to be able to upgrade my packages without having to expect that everything's going to break on me every time. And then conversely, other people are going to say, I sure would like to not ever be blocked because you know whatever your thing is doing, I want to be able to reach in and mess with it. And that's where I think you get into an interesting question of what should the language allow you to do? And you could say, well, the language ought to let me say... I know what I'm doing. Let me just reach in and mess with this. So you see languages that have like a private designator, but there's like a thing you can use that says like, okay, let me ignore that. Let me just reach in and just do the thing anyway. But there's other languages like Elm and Rock, which just don't have that. And we just say like, no, that's like a hard guarantee. And if you really want to do that, guess what? You're going to have to like fork the thing and expose that yourself. And that's what saying I'm an adult, I'm going to take responsibility. looks like is forking it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of these cases where I don't think there is an opportunity to say, we can just have the best of both worlds. It's like, if you try to have the best of both worlds, you're really kind of just having one world.
1: I think the thing you just said there is a thing I wish we embraced more. And that is just fork things. I think we've gotten into a really interesting spot with open source ecosystems where there's a very high value which i share very strongly of we want one we want to congeal on one good standardized solution to a thing we want as much as possible you know there's here's the package that we all use and we contribute fixes back to it or if there are a couple they're clearly sitting in very different points in the solution space and so you can understand why they're doing those different things but i was Thinking even earlier this year with a little package that a guy had published that just does a really simple thing for visualizing the word length in the sentences in a block of text. Nice little thing to see, like, do I have any variance in my sentence rhythm or are they all 47 words long? That would be my problem. And I just forked it and I realized, like, I just made this different for me because I wanted something different out of it. And it's fine, actually. I don't have to open a PR and contribute it back. And I think in a lot of ways, this focus around communities and shared solutions is broadly a very good thing. But it can make us miss sometimes that one of the great benefits of actual open source and open licenses is if it doesn't suit your needs, you can fork it. And you can say, this thing is good. And now I'm taking on the responsibility of also if I want to keep up with the upstream, I'm going to do the work of keeping in sync. But I'm getting this benefit. Is that benefit worth the cost to me now to maintain? And I think the thing that signals to me is a kind of maturity of saying, I'm not going to put all the cost on you, the maintainer of giving me this thing that I want. I'm going to recognize that there is a cost to you as a maintainer of doing that. I'm going to take the cost because I want this thing and it's worth enough to me. And I think we might end up in a healthier spot in terms of some of these pressures on maintainers in open source. If we had more of a, hey, it's okay, fork it. And if it's not worth it to you to fork it, then you might understand why it's not worth it to me to expose that to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. I mean, the typical concern there is like, well, if I fork it, then how am I going to keep up with bug fixes and security fixes and this and that? Which is fair. But yeah, like you said, otherwise, you know, what you're asking is, hey, maintainer, make your public A more complicated to accommodate my use case. And you take you care, take of, care all of all that. the future maintenance, maintenance <laughs> of all that, which yeah. I think. It's understandable on one hand because someone says, look, you could just make it a little bit more customizable for my particular use case. Why don't you just do that? But of course, if a maintainer did that for every single person who requested that, it would not be a small amount of additional work.
1: No, no, indeed.
0: Yeah. Awesome. We covered a lot of ground here. Anything else we should talk about before we wrap up?
1: I think that covers it pretty well. Thanks so much. This
0: was a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining me, Chris.